phrases over and over again, Paul is lifting up this imperative of unity. Note the phrase, one mind, which we'll see again in our text. So now, chapter 2 and verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. We'll spend more time in verses 5 through 11, but we need to get some foundation here and some context in verses 1 through 4. Paul sets up this string of commands about unity with this list of motivations in verse 1. But notice, depending on your translation, that if there should be understood as since. For those grammar people out there that just love the finer points of grammar, this is a first-class condition. It's an assumption of truth for the sake of argument. If you're not a grammar person, just forget everything I just said. But that if should be understood as since. In other words, since there is encouragement in Christ, there is comfort from love, there is participation in the Spirit, and so on, then prove it by living it out. That's the force of Paul's argument. In verse 2, Paul starts laying these commands one on top of the other so there's no doubt in their minds what Paul's saying or just how important this imperative is. Be of the same mind or be like-minded. Have the same agape love. Be of one accord, united in character, in affections, in priority. And then again, he repeats of one mind over and over in this text. Let's be clear, first of all, in what being of one mind does not mean. Paul's not saying to the church in Philippi and to the church here in Richardson, Texas, Trinity Fellowship Church, that we all have to have the same opinions or think the same way about secondary issues. Paul's not saying every member needs to belong to a particular political party, though some seem to think so in our day, because that would be unanimity. And that's a very different thing than unity. The words kind of sound the same, but they're very, very different. In fact, unanimity undermines biblical unity. When Christians say, you know what, I don't agree with you 100%, so I'm out of here. I'm going to go find another Christian or another church that thinks exactly like I do. That's easy. That's comfortable. But when we do that, we chip away at our witness and our potential for unity. Unity is when diverse people come together around the core truth of our faith and say, you know what, we're citizens of heaven first, all of us are, and we're everything else second. We're of one mind about Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I'm so encouraged when some say, as some in this body have said, I may disagree with this decision or that decision, but I'm committed to this community. I'm committed to unity. Praise God. That is the attitude that Paul is pointing at here. And when this is alive in a church, that's when we can stand back and see God do something amazing. This attitude is possible, verse 4, through this Christ-like virtue of humility. Putting others before your own interests and agenda. But of course, again, this isn't easy, right? We know what Jesus would do oftentimes, but we don't always do it. We get into disagreements and we can say, you know what, you, you go ahead and be Jesus.
for right now. When we see the church's failure to be unified so often in history, you've probably seen it in your own experience. This can feel like a hopeless case. A lofty idea that doesn't actually connect to real life. I mean, nice try, Paul. You meant well, but I'm afraid we can't obey an impossible command. And you can hear Paul saying, wait just a minute. I'm not done. I've saved the best for last. He's listed all these motivations so far for us to live out this kind of humility, but none are more important than the person and work of Christ himself. It all hinges on this. And so now we approach the mountaintop of this text, one of the highest peaks really in all of Scripture. The language here is considered some of the greatest prose in the entire New Testament. So as we read it together and dive into it a bit, let's hear its beauty It's power, it's deep theology, but don't forget the context. This isn't an intellectual curiosity. Paul's not trying to impress us with his theology. His point here is our transformation. He says, be of one mind. And then he shows us what that mind actually looks like, and we find out it's the mind of Jesus himself. So look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Some translations say, have this mindset or adopt the same attitude Christ had. And the in Christ here reminds us of our eternal status with God. Our eternal status as sons and daughters, equipped by Christ to actually obey his commands. We might stare at a great work of art and wonder what, I wonder what the author, or excuse me, what the artist had in mind when he painted this great work of art. That's how Paul uses mind here. What did Jesus have in mind in his incarnation? What did he have in mind on the way to his suffering and death? What were the principles and the values and priorities that guided him and that are also to guide us? We're going to find out here, getting a glimpse again into the very mind of God the Son. Verses 6 through 11 make up what many call the Christ hymn. It's believed to be a hymn sung by the early church. Wouldn't you have loved to hear these words put to music and sung by those early Christians. Either Paul may have wrote this previously or he's quoting it, assuming they know it, with features of Greek poetry, and we see the movement here go down, down, down in the humiliation of Christ, and then up, up, up in his exaltation. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's hit just a few highlights here if we can. There's so much. But first, this is one of the clearest passages in all the New Testament, and probably the boldest, teaching the deity of Christ. Verse 6 tells us of Christ before the incarnation that he was in the form of God. The form of God. You may say, well, stop right there. It just says he was in the form of God. doesn't quite say he was God, but that's a limitation of translation. Modern English uses the word form. We use the word form often to mean outward appearance, but that's not what the Greek word here means. This is morphe. 
This word means essence, nature, or character. In other words, morphe is what you are at your core. It's who you are. So Jesus was in the morphe of God. Jesus was and is one with the Father. He shares his essence and nature. If Paul wanted to say something like, Jesus reminds us of God, or Jesus had an outward appearance of God, but it wasn't really God, there was another Greek word for that, schema. He didn't use that Greek word, did he? He used morphe. So there's no mistaking his meaning here. Jesus is God. He existed eternally in glory with the Father and Holy and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus himself says in John 17. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. It doesn't say he's the reflector of the glory of God, kind of like the moon is to the sun. Rather, he is the sun. How should this truth affect our minds? As believers, if Jesus really is God, then of course he's worthy of our complete allegiance. He's worthy of our devotion and our worship. And if you don't know Christ... This passage presents a challenge to your mind and to your heart to make a decision about these claims about Jesus, whether you know nothing about the Bible or maybe you're part of a a faith background that recognizes Jesus but sees him as just a moral teacher or maybe a prophet. There can be no moderate reaction to Jesus and what the Bible says about him. Think about it. In the Gospels, when Jesus spoke and acted. How did people respond? Did anyone say, yeah, I kind of like that guy. I kind of like that Jesus. No. When they heard what he said about himself and what he did, they either wanted to kill him for claiming to be God, or they did what? They fell down in worship and they gave their lives to him. There's no neutral ground. So if you're not a Christian, either here or joining us online, give some serious consideration to these claims. Give some serious consideration to what this text says about Jesus Christ. And what would that mean for you if this is true? See in this text the lengths that he went for your salvation. Please reach out if you have any questions about what this might mean for you personally. But this is the mind of Christ. Verse 6, though he was one with God, he did not count equality. See that word. If the preceding phrases weren't clear enough, Paul says he was equal with God. Though he was one with God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasp here is idea of robbery. He didn't choose to exploit his status. He didn't choose to hold on to it for his own advantage. Who did try to grasp at this equality with God? Satan, the enemy, who had no right, and yet he grasped for it. Adam and Eve, when they gave in to the lie that they could be like God, they grasped at it and ate the fruit. We grasp every time we know what God's will is, every time we know what Jesus would do, and we don't do it. Jesus alone had the right. Instead of clinging to his privileges, he did what? Verse 7, he emptied himself. This is a text full of important words, and here's another one. He emptied himself. 
This word sort of pulls back the curtain on the mystery here and yet reveals it's an even deeper mystery than we can comprehend. So much has been written and debated about just what this emptying means. We don't have time to go into that, but what it doesn't mean is that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. The following verses make it so clear that this emptying is defined by positives. It's defined by the positive actions of what he takes on. Watch the text. He made himself nothing, not by subtraction, but by addition. He didn't lose his divinity, rather he took on humanity. Do you see that? He took on the form of a servant, the form of a servant. There's Morphe again. He didn't just come down and look like a man. He didn't just have the appearance of a man. He became one. He didn't exchange one form for another. He took on a human body forever. Essential truth. Forever, both God and man. So Jesus emptied himself for the privileges of the prerogatives of deity when he took on flesh. God himself becoming a baby in Mary's womb. God the Son himself becoming totally dependent on the care of his parents. The creator of the universe being tired after a long day, being hungry, being thirsty. Can you fathom this humility? And somehow, incredibly, the downward movement of this hymn isn't done. It's far from done. He lowered himself to become a man. He lowered himself to become a servant. And then further down to the lowest possible place. From the highest to the lowest. All the way down to death on a cross. And notice it says, he humbled himself. Nobody ever humbled Jesus. He chose to humble himself. He voluntarily humbled himself. As Jesus says in John 10, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This makes the death of Jesus all the more amazing. Rome, with all its power and might, had no power over Jesus. He went willingly to death. And not just any death, the cross, one of the worst and cruelest human inventions of all time. Polite Roman society wouldn't even say the word cross. Considered an obscenity. Death on a cross meant being despised by people and cursed by God. What would Jesus do? This is what Jesus would do. This is what Jesus did for us. To put aside the privileges of glory of his own deity for the sake of sinful people. This is the mind of our Lord. When people in the ancient world thought of great rulers and kings, they thought of Alexander the Great. By the time of his death at age 33, he had conquered so much of the known world that he was regarded by some as divine. People saw no other explanation. This guy must be a god. Or they maybe thought of some other emperors who ruled with might and skill to dominate their enemies and rule an empire to show their power. These were the leaders that people praised as divine or godlike. What a contrast we see here. The one who was and is divine, who humbled himself to the point of death for who? His enemies, so that they might become citizens of heaven. He went down. He went down and down. And now we see the upward movement of this hymn, verse 9. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're still in the Easter season where we recognize our Savior didn't just go down to death for us, but he rose bodily from the grave. And he then ascended to the Father, exalted forever at the Father's right hand. So how do we respond to a text like this that is so incredible, so much mystery, so much beauty beyond comprehension? Well, we rightly stand in awe. We rightly respond to these last verses in worship. We bow before him. And remember where we started. This text is a call to live out a Christ-like humility so we can be unified. Remember, Paul's point here isn't to give us a theological treatise. He's trying to urge us to adopt a way of life that is already ours in Christ. Not by our own self-effort, but by yielding to the power and the life of Christ in us. This is how a kingdom citizen thinks. It doesn't stop with our mind. Humility has to move from our mind to our heart to our hands and feet. So for this truth to become a reality in our lives, we have to stop grasping at the things that are not ours. We have to stop grasping for the things that God hasn't given us. Taking on the mind of Christ will free us to give up our small, our petty ambitions. Maybe for you, it's constantly climbing the corporate ladder or getting ahead, whatever your vocation, whatever your pursuit. Maybe you tell yourself it's for others you want to provide, but deep down you know you're really sacrificing so much to get the status and the recognition that you think you deserve. Maybe for you, this grasping is done on social media where you manipulate your own image and you manipulate others to try to get liked, to try to get the popularity that you think will make you happy. Maybe you grasp at being right about everything, just amassing facts and data to vanquish your foes in arguments, to earn respect. Ask God to show you, we all have these temptations, ask God to show you what your small ambitions are. The things that you're most tempted to take by force. As Tim Keller says, we try so desperately to be somebody, therefore we fall to the bottom and don't even know who we are. This text calls us to find our identity in Christ, to find the freedom to let all of those things go. As Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be your, what? Servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We don't go up by grasping at it. Like Jesus, we go up by going down. And the mind of Christ frees us to let God be the one to lift us up, if and when he wants to. 1 Peter 5 probably says it best. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So the mind of Christ frees us to stop grasping, and the mind of Christ frees us to start serving. To serve with true humility. To empty ourselves, to pour ourselves out for others without need for thanks or recognition. Maybe you're in a conflict with a family member or a friend right now that's troubling you. How does the mind of Christ speak into this? Ask yourself prayerfully that question. Instead of just waiting for them to meet you halfway, what would it look like for you to act in their best interests and not just worry about your own? I can almost guarantee there will be a situation for you this week, or many, where the mind of Christ could change your attitude. It could change your actions, and it could change the outcome of a particular situation. So let's commit to pray over this passage. Let's meditate on this text. Let's memorize it to constantly ask, how does the mind of Christ, that is mine in him, how does the mind of Christ guide my response to that rude comment? How does the mind of Christ guide me in this tough decision or in that hard conversation I need to have? We stand in awe of the mind of Christ. We've seen behind the curtain into this mystery just a little bit, just a glimpse, that the eternal God would humble himself and become a servant and go to the cross for his creation. As the great hymn writer Charles Wesley wrote, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design?' He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. What would Jesus do? This right here. This is what he did for us. This is what he thought about us. And he gives us his mind that we might be like him. Would you bow with me? Close with a prayer by Arthur Bennett. Our Father, let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Amen. Let us stand together.